Welcome to Ground Truth, a podcast series that explores trends and developments in environmental justice produced in partnership with the Environmental Law Institute and Beverage and Diamond. The Ground Truth series is a part of the Environmental Law Institute's People, Places, Planet podcast and Beverage and Diamond's The Environmental Law Podcast. Environmental justice, a movement dating back to the civil rights era, is defined by EPA as the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people, regardless of race, color, national origin, or income, with respect to the development, implementation, and enforcement of environmental laws, regulations, and policies. The movement has gained new momentum in recent years. Under the Biden-Harris administration, we have already started to see unprecedented attention to environmental justice, or EJ, by the federal government, with states continuing to implement EJ-focused legislation, all of which has continued into 2022. It is becoming increasingly important for companies and municipalities to proactively address EJ issues, as the federal and state government's increased focus on it has potential to significantly impact organizations' plans and operations. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the year's second episode of Ground Truth. I'm Stacey Halliday. I'm Julius Red. We're shareholders at Beverage and Diamond and co-chairs of the firm's Environmental Justice Practice Group. We have an amazing program today. Julius and I had the privilege of speaking with EPA's Samantha Beers and welcoming back Matthew Tejada. Some of our listeners may recall that we were lucky enough to have Matthew join us last season for a general discussion on perspectives on EJ from EPA as we enter 2022. Now, well into 2022, we're lucky to have both Matthew and Samantha join us for a discussion about the intersection of EJ and ESG. We'll get, to, we'll get into more of what that means and the implications uh, in a moment. But before we jump into that conversation, we wanted to share a few updates because a lot has happened in the EJ world in the last couple of weeks. Um, one of the biggest developments, really, is on February 18th, we saw the much-awaited release of CEQ's Climate and Economic Justice Screening Tool. The tool was uh, CEJST, as it's being called, um, was released and in accordance with uh, direction from Executive Order 14008, which directed CEQ to create a climate and economic justice screening tool to help agencies identify disadvantaged communities that are marginalized, underserved, and overburdened by pollution. The purpose of the tool is to help federal agencies identify disadvantaged communities that are marginalized, underserved, and overburdened by pollution. It uses 21 metrics from climate, environmental metrics, health and economic data at the census tract, census tract level, notably not including race. To be considered disadvantaged, typically the communities are above the 65th percentile in terms of the proportion of population that's low income and must also be in the 90th percentile or above in one of the environmental or health indices. On the 18th, we also saw the release of EJ Screen 2.0. EJ Screen, for the uninitiated, is a GIS tool that Blends a mapping tool that blends demographic and environmental data at the census block level on EJ-related metrics. These changes include new data showing communities with uh, gaps in food availability or food deserts, medical services, and broadband internet, for example. Uh, additional health and equity data has also been updated to show metrics on life expectancy, asthma, and heart disease, a lot of uh, data coming out of CDC. It also brought in a new environmental indicator. There were 11 environmental indices before that blended demographics and uh, environmental data. Now there's a 12th that addresses underground storage tanks. Um, demographic data was also updated to reflect the latest U.S. Census um, American Community Survey from 2015 to 2019. 
So big changes here um, on both these mapping tools. Julius, what do you think about these developments? How do you think they'll really have an impact? Well, I think it's really um, an exciting time in the EJ space, and a lot of the clients that we hear that we hear from and work with are sort of confused as to the difference between the two and what their intended purposes are. As I understand it, uh, CEJST, and parenthetically, somebody much smarter than me has to come up with a a cool uh, short name to uh, refer to this tool. I don't, I'm not in love with what's with, with CEJST, but anyway, CEJST. Um, I think my understanding is it is designed to define and identify quote unquote disadvantaged communities that the government wants to ensure receives 40% of overall benefits from certain investments related to uh, climate change. That's where I, I, I think the primary uh, use for CEJST will be, as opposed to EJ Screen, which is a tool, as I think you described, has been around for many years now. And I think the primary use for that will be to assist um, regulators in making various decisions where where they have discretion um, decisions perhaps related to enforcement, permitting, and, and rulemaking as examples, I think um, EJ Screen 2.0 will likely be relied on to inform as one data point to inform the ultimate decisions that uh, the regulators are going to make. Yeah, it is going to be a really exciting couple of, of months watching this play out and seeing how it's used, like you said, in any number of contexts. Um, just sort of building from there, I think, um, you think about the implications of these tools, but there's also, I mean, these are the big top-line issues of the day, but there are also some slightly underreported developments on environmental justice issues. Um, what are you seeing that's a little bit you know, less high-profile that, that's coming out of the federal government and at the state level? So, so one of the things that President Biden's executive order 14,008 discusses that hasn't uh, gotten, I think, a lot of attention is potential revisions to Bill Clinton's prior executive order, executive order 12898, sort of the seminal environmental justice executive order. Um, in four, Executive Order 14,008, President Biden directs the White House Environmental Justice Interagency Council to provide recommendations on amendments to Executive Order 14,000, excuse me, Executive Order 12,898. And um, there hasn't been much uh, re reported about amendments in the works, but um, my understanding is that Amendments are being worked on now as we speak, and those are forthcoming. So I, I would uh, really curious to see sort of how President Biden amends Executive Order 12898 and what that means, I think, primarily for the federal government and how they go about fulfilling their missions. 
That's a great point. I, I think that consistent with what we're seeing in terms of, you know, these evolving definitions from different agencies and from the White House, do you see any other instances or anything else that's upcoming that might sort of challenge those new definitions that we're seeing come from, you know, EO 12898 2.0? <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, Stacey, as you eloquently put it uh, last summer, <clears throat> with respect to the Justice 40 initiative, interim guidance was released uh, in July 2021 by the Office of Management and Budget, along with CEQ and Gina McCarthy's office, the National Climate Advisor. It, it provided some interim definitions around the phrase, quote, unquote, disadvantaged community. And I think you refer to it as defining ambiguous terms with ambiguous definitions. So uh, to us, we're joking sort of clear as mud. And within that interim guidance, it alluded to final guidance being issued with the release of the CEJST. And what I anticipate will occur is after the comment period related to CEJST closes on April 25th, and the final version of that tool is issued, I suspect that final guidance will be issued around that time, wherein we will get um, definitive definitions of what some of these uh, ambiguous terms in the environmental justice world means. Uh, I think we'll get more clear guardrails with respect to how we define disadvantaged community and which communities qualify for the 40% benefits uh, initiative under Justice 40. So now you're making me feel bad about my Yelp review of the uh, injury guidance, but <laughs> I know that the folks, the hardworking folks at CEQ are, are doing their best with some really unwieldy concepts and, and you know, trying to operationalize all this stuff isn't, operationalize all this stuff isn't easy. But um, just thinking about definitions and thinking about transparency, uh, it, you know, sort of inspired the conversation that we're going to have today with Matthew and Samantha and just, you know, thinking about upcoming news, we're expecting in the next month or so to hear from SEC on the Sunshine Act on you know, mandatory climate change disclosures. So um, we'll flag that on March 21st, SEC announced it's going to broadcast a public meeting where it discusses where it stands with those uh, upcoming anticipated regulations for what sort of criteria uh, the SEC might mandate for climate reporting. And thinking about this administration and how they weave environmental justice into just about everything they're doing, as promised by President Biden, uh, so that's an area where we wanted to talk with Matthew and Samantha about how they think ESG climate reporting uh, context would really get involved with EJ. Do we see an overlap? Do we see blending of trends? What can we expect and how can we prepare? And with that, we'll get right into our conversation with Matthew and Samantha. Thank you to Matthew and Samantha for joining us. I think just to kick us off, really for the benefit of our listeners, could you each please describe your current roles at EPA, starting with Samantha? Hi, my name is Samantha Phillips-Beers. I'm the director of the Office of Communities, Tribes, and Environmental Assessment in Region 3. Region 3 is the Mid-Atlantic region, which covers the states of Pennsylvania, Delaware, West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. Our office includes environmental justice, children's health, healthy homes, 
the Opportunity Zone Program, Sustainability, and all of NEPA, as well as the seven federally recognized tribes in Virginia. And my name is Matthew Tejada. I'm the director of the Office of Environmental Justice here at EPA's headquarters in Washington. So I'm in charge generally of, of the EJ program overall. I'm the senior career executive uh, in charge of the program and have been around for just right at nine years in this role. So uh, I'm happy to be still working and helping to lead environmental justice at EPA in this very exciting administration. Thank you both for joining us. Happy nine-year anniversary, Matt. So I think just to jump into the meat of this, we're just really excited to blend the conversation about environmental justice and ESG, standing for environmental, social, and governance. So ESG is a very hot topic right now. It's on the fr it's front of mind across a variety of disciplines, boardrooms, agencies, et cetera, for our listeners' benefit. And so we're all on the same page, so it's sort of level set. How would you all define ESG? How do you do that from the EPA perspective? Well, ESG is an attempt to quantify and display the risks and opportunities that can impact a company's ability to create long-term fiduciary value. So the, there's three pillars, environment, which includes climate change, natural resources, and environmental justice principles, pollution and waste, and environmental opportunities. Social, which includes labor, product safety, and data security, and of course, governance. To me, governance is where the rubber meets the road. It's all about accountability of the board for the company's practices. That's really helpful. I think just getting a, a 30,000 foot understanding because you hear sustainability and ESG all the time, and it's hard to nail down just concrete definitions for these terms. Matt, do you see, do you see these issues come across your desk? And, and how do you define ESG from your perspective? I know that ESG is another kind of attempt, like sustainability in the past, to try to help quantify and put the sort of values or priorities into the business world, into business language. And I think this is an exciting opportunity with ESG to actually take an effort that has gained quite a bit of traction and support the private sector, engaging with the private sector to understand how that progress is already making, that area where they're already developing what ESG means, how that has immediate relevancy for a lot of the things that actually exist within our efforts to advance equity and justice. Absolutely. That, make, that makes so much sense. And I think it's interesting to see how these joint efforts of ESG and transparency and environmental justice are really manifesting at the federal level and all the amazing work that you're all doing. Samantha, in your sort of day-to-day -day with the many hats that you wear from an EJ perspective, do you have responsibilities that sort of relate to ESG or do you see it on the day? How does it manifest for you? So it really does because Matt, Tejada, and I've worked collaboratively together for, for about nine years now. And during the course of that time, he's been able to really help drill down on the overarching environmental justice principles and how we can best make sure that all of America gets the largesse of environmental protection. In that way, when I expressed an interest in finding out more about ESG and, and in fact, taking a, a course on it at my alma mater law school, University of California, Berkeley last summer, he was extraordinarily supportive because we all understand the need for companies and American businesses to begin to better understand environmental justice principles and start to roll them into how they do business. So he asked me to start thinking a little bit more about it and to help sort of dissect it as someone who's been doing EJ in the field in the regional office for so many years, I guess about 20, 25 years now. So I think one of the big things we started with is trying to understand how does corporate America understand what EJ is? 
what is the view on the street and what's their view of ESG? So we've held a bunch of listening sessions with trade associations in several sectors and industry to say, what's your understanding of what is EJ? And by the way, what are you doing right now on values-based investing in ESG? And what do you want me to know as I begin to start to unpack this and then share that information back with Matt? I'd just like to add, I mean, I think it's important for folks in the private sector to understand within within their attempts to try to understand what environmental justice is and, and how that potentially relates to ESG, we are here at EPA as a resource. I've even over the past year had former colleagues from EPA that have retired or moved on into private industry. I mean, folks that are in Fortune 50 companies kind of sheepishly contact me, you know, through social platforms or other things saying, hey, you know, after five o'clock when you're off time, would you spare 30 minutes to come talk to me and some VPs at the company about EJ? We're just really curious. And I was like, why why are you contacting me on social media? Just email me. You know my email and my job is to talk to you. We're not just here to engage with communities. We're not just here to work inside the agency. The EJ movement from the very beginning has made it super clear that it takes all partners to engage with communities to advance solutions to the sorts of challenges that exist in communities with EJ concerns. And business and industry, the private sector, is front and center in that. It's part of the reason why Going back to its earliest days, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, the NEJAC, has always had dedicated uh, representation by business and industry. They are important actors in advancing equity and justice. And we have every bit the responsibility and the desire to engage and support the efforts of our private industry colleagues in advancing their understanding of equity and justice, however that might happen as we do in working with other federal agencies or working with states or working with local governments. So I just wanna make sure that that folks out there know that folks like Samantha and us in in headquarters and throughout the rest of the regions, we we exist as part of our jobs to help engage and support other folks in their efforts. So what you're hearing from both the national and regional office, from folks who've been doing EJ for, whether in EPA or out for our entire professional lives, the way we look at this is a three-legged stool. One stool is the regulator, state and federal and local. Another stool is the community. And the third stool that makes it stand is corporate America. So it's not just a whim or a desire. It's a need. So the table's open, and we're really excited to have this opportunity to delve a little deeper into ESG and EJ with you guys tonight. That was excellent insight, Samantha, and that. And what I really like is how you articulated the three legged stool of environmental justice, as as I'll describe it. One of the things that we hear from our corporate clients is sometimes frustration because they don't perceive opportunities to be a stakeholder and to give feedback to the administration as it is embarking on this very important work with respect to environmental justice. So it's reassuring to hear that the regulators inside the administration view the regulated community as a as a important stakeholder and are, it sounds like, in some respects, solicitous of the feedback and input from that stakeholder group. Yeah, I'd like to speak to that because we hear this a lot. Business and industry wants to be a partner. Business and industry wants to work with EPA on this. I think for us in the EJ program at EPA, we would love 
And one of the things we hope to be able to invest in more is really developing our relationship with business and industry. But we're going to need business and industry to do the same thing. We're going to need business and industry to invest and to show up and to be ready to operate with a level of transparency and authenticity in that interaction and in engaging on environmental justice issues, much more so than it's done before. It's going to mean going far further above and beyond what business and industry has ever done in my experience. And, and this is my experience at EPA. And then before that, working a lot with business and industry when I was an advocate down in the Houston area, the, the standard that is out there right now is not going to cut it. And I think there is a lot of work that has to be done by the private sector before we get to a place where I think we all want to be. And we at EPA, I think, want to get to that place and are, are, are wanting and, and looking at making more of that solid investment and reaching out to and supporting business and business and industry and doing it. But it's not a free pass. What I've seen around that, about just to lean into that comment, is like everything else in this world, there's a variety. We want you guys to have a better understanding and feel comfortable making the call because we all believe that we need you at the table. So how do we get from where we are to where we need to be? Well, part of that is the invitation. But what Matt's pointing to is the need to have you walk through the door. And the door's open, and we'd like to have you walk through the door. I stated earlier that in order to start understanding the challenges in American business, I've held a couple of listening sessions. Now, the sector was selected for me, not by me, and it ended up being the energy sector. And um, it was because a friend of a friend said, hey, would you mind coming to this? Just like Matt was saying, where you get phone calls. Would you mind listening to what my clients think is difficult around EJ and ESG? And I said, of course, I'm happy to. I brought two of my staff members to help me take notes, and we went and did, uh, I think it was four one-hour sessions with a variety of folks within that sector. And I got to tell you something. They learned as much as we did. So the door's open, and what Matt's saying is, come on, guys, come on in. I think that is an excellent antidote there, Samantha, because what we have heard from companies in any number of sectors, even some sectors that you would not necessarily think will be important stakeholders with respect to environmental justice issues, and they are desirous of understanding what the administration's goals might mean for them and how they might be able to help the administration meet those goals. How might they be able to adjust their business practices to meet the administration's expectation? And I think toward getting that reassurance from both you and Matt, that door is open, I think goes a long way to convincing industry that they should be taking up an opportunity to engage with them. I want to give uh, Stacy a chance to sort of articulate what we think might be coming with respect to perhaps ways of measuring corporate efforts with respect to environmental justice. Yeah, I think this is sort of a follow-on to this conversation. It's going momentum to ask this question. It's just, you know, when we talk about business coming to the table, um, industry coming to the table and being more transparent, what do we mean and what's the ideal there? When we walk through the door, not only in outreach to the agency, but in thinking about ESG disclosures and, and reporting, what sort of metrics and standards should we be thinking about for environmental justice, for reporting metrics on environmental justice in a meaningful way? Like think about TCFD, SASB, GRI. What would that look like for EJ? 
Well, before we go there, I, I want to start maybe from a more basic place. For for what I look for, and for what I am looking for, and what I think is going to matter much more to the communities that need business and industry to show up. I mean, we need them to show up at EPA. You know, we want we want a strong, viable partner in the private sector in doing this work. The communities that are suffering the disproportionate burden of environmental risks, of disinvestment, of a lack of access to a clean environment, they're the ones that need business and industry to show up. And a, a couple of the things that, that I'm looking for as very clear indications are that, and, and, and I offer this with an acknowledgement that we're still struggling to, to walk this same talk as I'm looking for business and industry to do, but you have to invest in environmental justice. Environmental justice is not the meeting at the local library that you send your baby lawyer or your junior engineer to on a Wednesday night and expect that to count as meaningfully engaging the community. It is not the, the portfolio to have one of your engineers who, who always winds up with a few extra hours on Friday afternoon trying to figure out how to use EJ screen to understand the communities around the fence lines of all of your facilities. Environmental justice is a practice. It is a profession. It is something that takes skill. It is something that takes experience. It is something that takes an acute level of emotional intelligence that most professions never scratch the surface of. And until business and industry invests in a practice of environmental justice in the same way that business and industry invests in engineering or in lawyering or in science, you're not going to get there. I guarantee you, you're not going to get there. And again, we're, we're still struggling across the federal government to make that same investment in the value that we must in order to really fill out being able to advance equity and justice in what we do. The other thing I would really look for is that business and industry cannot just be a good neighbor. Right. It cannot just buy new uniforms for the local football team. If business and industry wants to participate in environmental justice and help be a real solution for communities that need and deserve all of our attention and all of our help, they're going to have to show up as a member of that community. They're going to have to show up in the places and in the ways that maybe don't have any direct implication for the bottom line of that quarter or for that company. But are the things that that community needs to see happen to be a happy, healthy place to live? And I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that those things, those sorts of priorities, those sorts of decisions relate to the way that we can use ESG to really reward in another place businesses that actually make those investments, that make those decisions. But they're going to have to be tangible on the ground for communities for any of this to matter. So to drill down on, on Matt's statement, which is how we all think of EJ, and I guess I just want to touch for a second on the fact that, as you guys know, in American corporate law, corporations count as people. And what Matt's talking about is imploring corporations cited in our communities throughout the United States to be good citizens and good neighbors. The challenge for me has been to translate the principles you're hearing Matt talk about into metrics and standards so that corporate America can get on board with values-based investing. Because I truly believe that 
as it's taken hold in the EU and in Denmark and in other systems outside the EU, it will take hold here too. So I have been devoting quite a bit of time to sitting in on the ASTM and ANSI ISO standards work groups and translating the concepts that you're hearing Matt talk about, being a good neighbor, being a good citizen, finding out what people care about, what makes the community livable, into the types of standards and triggers so that corporate America can start to report out on the work that they are doing. And I truly believe in positive peer pressure. I believe when we have a clear reporting system, it's going to be a little bit more exciting for corporate America to try to get their score up, to attract those values-based investors, and to be able to brag about and take credit for the work that they are doing to improve the community as a whole. So I've been spending a lot of time on these work groups and starting to explain what are EJ principles, how do they translate, what are the triggers, what should be reported. Just as a brief example, I was on the phone with a major energy producer, and I asked questions about his standard practices. So what we ended up finding out is a couple of the practices the individual was doing were exactly the sort of things that translate into metrics that could be reported out on. And it goes beyond the regular once a quarter meetings, which are important, open to the community, but it's what happens at those meetings. When the community raises their hand and says, did you know that the trucks that you bring in my community every day, 300 truck trips a day, are the exact same route as the bus route? And I'm afraid when my kids get off, they're going to get hit. Or the smell from your buses and the diesel makes my daughter who has asthma cough. That sort of information and what the company chooses to do with it should be translated into principles and metrics that the company can report out on as their successes as they tout how they are good members of the community. That makes perfect sense, Samantha. And I guess it reaffirms uh, some of the advice that we have been giving some of our clients and that a lot of the activity that they might already be engaging in might actually consider the concerns of the EJ community Sometimes you just reframe how you're thinking about how you are engaging in your operations. A lot of times we find that companies are intimidated by this concept of, of environmental justice, but once you start to drill down to the concept and what it actually means for their company, they find that some of their practices can be altered a bit to more proactively account for the communities in which they they serve. And candidly, that's not all clients don't fall into that category, but certainly there are some that I do. I just wanted to reiterate one of Matt's points because I think that that's what it meets the road. I'm glad to hear you say there are companies that want to lean in. And then what we want them to do is lean in. And then by reporting out, they can realize on the spectrum of those who are leaning in additional work and best practices they can adapt. So the example I gave about the quarterly meeting and then what you do with the information that you learn is a really important one. That makes a huge difference. It's not just going to the meeting and sending a junior person, but as Matt previously stated, it's investing in understanding so the person who walks into the community meeting isn't afraid because they've done this before, because it's not new for them, because they're a community outreach professional. I couldn't agree more. One of the underlying themes I think that I hear both you and Matt articulating is that ways to hold corporate America accountable. In recent years and months, we've seen a new method sort of gain prominence with respect to holding corporate America accountable 
for ESG issues in a broader umbrella, but environmental justice issues specifically. And I think last year we saw a shareholder advocacy group release a report where they rated, at first they rated the S&P 500 companies Mm -hmm. on their approach to, to racial justice. And that also included an assessment of their environmental justice record. And then they they later revised their analysis to expand it to the entire Russell 1000. I'm really interested in in hearing your thoughts with respect to whether you think this is a good model for for holding corporate America accountable with respect to environmental justice issues. See, I think there's a big difference between racial justice issues and environmental justice issues. And I I don't believe that EJ belongs under the social pillar. I believe EJ belongs under the environmental pillar because what you do and how you do it when you're doing manufacturing or operating in a community is how you carry out your environmental responsibility. It's not social justice. And that's in no way to discount the importance of social justice. But the environmental justice movement is a movement. It's a ground up movement. When Americans were tired of watching other communities get the benefits of the products without the cost. How many times have I been in rooms where people have said, the first thing that goes up when you build a company is the parking lot, and the second thing is the fence around it? You don't just stick a company in a neighborhood, bring in all your workers, leave all your waste behind, and and talk about social and environmental justice, right? So although I think the social justice movement is very important, and I'm very committed to it, I work in the field of environmental justice. So under the environmental pillar, we really need to think about and separate out your practices with regards to the diversity of your board and your employees from how you conduct yourself as a citizen in a neighborhood. Matt, am I, am I getting this? I'm about to say something. Okay. I think one of the things that is important for the private sector to understand is that environmental justice does not come from the environmental movement. Environmental justice very much comes from the civil rights movement and social justice. It is the environmental part of that. It is a recognition that because of issues of race and because of issues of class, certain communities across the United States have received way more of the bad stuff than they deserve or is fair and have received way less of the good stuff than they deserve or is fair. And that shows up in a lot of different ways. It shows up in terms of housing. It shows up in terms of economic opportunity. It shows up in terms of education. And it shows up in terms of environment and public health. And that's where this crosses over into that environmental world. And understanding on the business side that, yes, you have a permit that allows you to produce a certain amount of pollution, and that's been issued to you in keeping with the Clean Air Act, and you have your permit, and you comply with your permit, and this is all well and good, so what do people have a problem with? Part of environmental justice is understanding, well, yeah, but the entire regulatory system that issued you that permit still is not fully contemplating and answering the reality on the ground for communities with EJ concerns that were designed on purpose to receive a disproportionate burden of pollution, that were designed on purpose to have a higher level of vulnerability 
within the community to any level of pollution. So just because a facility has a permit doesn't mean that it's okay with environmental justice because the entire system has not been set up to fairly and adequately protect those communities. That's one of the biggest things we're struggling with right now at EPA, and it's one of the biggest priorities of Administrator Regan is to take this environmental regulatory network endeavor system that has been crafted over 50 plus years and start to peel it back and really examine those places that don't understand or answer the reality of communities with EJ concerns. And how can we go about fixing that? So that moving forward, the permits that are issued ensure that we are as equally protecting a community that is predominantly African-American or a community that is predominantly low income or a community that is predominantly members of an indigenous community or tribe as we do any other community in the United States, because that's what's fair. And that's why it's part of everyone's responsibility to now figure out what to do about it. It's, it's the responsibility of everyone up and down the line within the government. It's the responsibility of everyone within the private sector, within academia, within nonprofit organizations, everywhere. Because our society, our country made these communities in this way. And it's not fair. It's not just. It's not equitable. And it sure as hell isn't equal. No, Matt, we're not disagreeing with each other at all. And I want to drill down on that by pointing to the today's, the uh, March 9th uh, Washington Post article on the history of redlining. Right. So in my shop, we've taken the redlining maps for the city of Philadelphia, for example, and we've used EJ screen. I know I'm cheating by bringing in another one of our big hot topics. Um, and then we've compared it in our third map to the blood lead levels of Philadelphia's children. And don't you know it's the same footprint? So as you know, the redlining maps were created by a federal agency, 1937 to 1939. And although the language was benign, and the actual goal was to develop a system to better protect banks and insurance companies from foreclosures and bankruptcies during the Depression, which, by the way, were mostly white families. The system was used to integrate in racial oppression. And that's not a, 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 an idea, but a fact. So when you look at the redlining maps and you look at the decisions that were made and the actual language that's written on these maps that talks in very disparaging terms about people of color, it is very clear that the most noxious uses were put in neighborhoods for a reason, and those communities have been long discarded. So what Matt's talking about is this administration's desire to have everyone take responsibility for the fresh look at what all of Americans' communities are living with. Is it okay? If it's not okay, if it's my child instead of your child, is that okay? If America decides that's not okay, what are we all going to do to change it? It's incredible to hear you guys talk about this. And it's, I think in our work, it's, you can get lost a little bit trying to take concepts this big, like systemic racism, like redlining, like uh, just just the, the cross-cutting nature of environmental justice and the way that it needs to apply so broadly and not just in a silo. It's difficult because a lot of folks in the ESG and sustainability field operate, and even, even at the agency, operate in media-based silos or yes. in categorical silos in ESG. And I, I think this comes into play quite a bit when we start talking to our clients who are big multinationals who, when they think about this, they want to put it in a bucket. They want to say, is this social? 
is this under the E? Is this a human rights issue? Uh, and how do we think about this in terms of human rights and our human rights disclosures? So when we think about these issues of inequity and, and this sort of built-in, baked-in, disproportionate impact on certain communities, do we think about that globally? And how do we think about those issues globally? Is it a human rights thing at all? Does that come into play? And, and how do we sort of you know, bring all those pieces together? I was struck by one of the things you first said, because it, it is so true, right? So many people look at environmental justice. I, before you even get to what do I do, they look at environmental justice and they're just mystified, right? Like, what is this thing? How do I understand it? Oh my gosh, you know, somebody needs to explain this. Environmental justice can really be super, super simple. It's about power. Who has the power to determine where the good stuff goes and where the bad stuff goes? That's not unique to the United States. That exists in every society, in every country, you know, to the beginning of the human race, right? Even but animals do this, right? Who gets the good stuff? Who gets the bad stuff? That is, environmental justice is a manifestation of people saying, this is unfair. It's a manifestation of saying, we haven't had power for a long time. Because in the United States, that because is usually because of race or it's because of class, such as income, right? Uh, it can also be because of language abilities. Uh, increasingly, very appropriately, and those are all power dynamics that help to determine who gets the good stuff and who gets the bad stuff. And nobody, none of us, not a single person, I don't care how rich you are, where you come from, what your job is, what your political party is, nobody wants to live in a community where you don't have a say in the good and the bad stuff in your community. We all want to have a say. We all realize we live in society and we're probably never going to have 100% say in what happens, right? We're never going to completely control it. But by God, we want to have a say in what happens in our community. Just to elucidate a little bit more on that point, Matt's 100% right. I've done community work and EJ work since 1992. And I got to tell you, when you walk in and you talk to communities and you say, tell me the 10 things you want me to know about what's happening here. And, you, and corporate America sitting there with you and you hear the list of 10. When I look over at the corporate side of the table, I see nodding on at least five things that can be done and change pretty quickly. They just didn't know before. Then there's two or three more that the community is asking for. They could probably be done with little or no real financial costs. It's just a shift. Then there's one or two that are, that are bigger that may not happen. But 80% of 100 things getting changed and done in that community to be better citizens because you were open to hearing and allowing a change in the power dynamic to allow folks who don't have power to share with you their feelings, their thoughts, their experience of living in that community with your co-located business, priceless, absolutely priceless. So how do we get folks to the space where they want to create those opportunities to have powerless folks have a conversation. I'm just going to give you one quick example that I've been kicking around in my head, which, which can sometimes be a scary place. So, you know, folks like to talk about, I brought my, my manufacturing facility in there, so I created jobs. They, they, air quotes, should be happy. Okay, how about you start reporting out how many folks in the zip code of your fence line community have jobs in your facility? I did that study in Chester, Pennsylvania for a large-scale employer and found that over 350 people had jobs and seven were from the fence line communities, seven. 
So don't walk around touting how you're creating jobs in that community because you may not be. You may be creating jobs in the state, but you but the waste is staying in the community. Are the jobs? So that's one of those areas where I think ESG and transparency will lead to positive peer pressure and folks will start to get more invested. That might look like summer internship programs. That might look like collaborations with the local community college to get folks ready for those jobs. That may look like scholarship opportunities. It might look like a lot of things to boost the amount of folks who live in the fence line communities having the opportunity to take advantage of the jobs that are created where the waste is created. Or it might look like, you know, working with that community college just to offer more classes on, on small entrepreneurialism. Right. Because maybe it's not that the community wants to show up to work in your facility. Maybe your facility doesn't have that many jobs to offer, but they still want to they still want to share in the benefit of the presence of the economy in their community. And when, what does that look like? Engage the community, figure out what it is they want and help them attain that. thing. Exactly. Those are excellent points that both of you made. And I think particularly in the state of the economy where we see ourselves now, where there are new jobs that are will be coming online. When we talk about the so-called just transition, I think the private sector can play a key role in helping certain communities get be prepared to be able to assume some of those jobs. But and I also like the point that you uh, both made about what the needs and desires are of the local community, because there, there might be certain um, relatively inexpensive things that a, a, a private sector company can do that would really go a long way to benefit the community. But what I heard the guy saying is you, wouldn't, you don't really have an appreciation for that unless you meaningfully engage with that community and hear from them what, how the private sector can support them. And, and with that, um, I would love for both of you to give any closing thoughts or make any points that you wish to, to make as we uh, conclude this episode today. And I will turn it to Samantha first to please share any closing thoughts or make any points that she wished to make that we didn't have a chance to discuss. I just think I want to, I want to restate that environmental justice is the fair treatment and meaningful involvement of all people. And we need to embrace that as a, as a tenant, regardless of who, who's in the White House. Because we, as an American people, uh, we need to come together. We need to raise the basement for all our communities. Uh, clean air, breathable, water, breathable, uh, breathable air, clean water, the ability to dig in your garden and plant vegetables if you want and to walk your kid to school. These are things that we all hold sacred and we need to spread that largesse throughout all of our communities. We really need to take a deep breath and think about how to make these principles real for all Americans. Because I think as Americans, we deserve no less. No matter where you live, no matter what your zip code is, you have certain rights. You have the right to breathe clean air. You have the right to, to drink water that's safe and drinkable. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to emphasize, re-emphasize that point, uh, or one point that Samantha just made. This is not, this is not something that has suddenly sprung, you know, from, from the ground because of this administration. This administration is elevating something that has been building for decades, that generations of people, especially community leaders, have put their lives into advancing this cause. 
it is something that, as somebody mentioned earlier, you know, we're seeing it now happen in the boardroom. We're seeing it happen at the quarterly shareholder meetings. We're seeing people demand business and industry to do this. We're seeing states and local governments get way beyond where EPA is in advancing equity and justice on the ground for business and industry and communities. This is not something that can just be weighted out. This is the future of how our society is evolving. And environmental justice and equity might be hard to actually make that decision to finally get into, but the things that you can do are right at your feet. There are steps right in front of you to take. And any contemplation of waiting for the system and the regulations to force you to do it, I think is not in keeping with everything we've talked about, about our responsibility to act on this now. And I think are also just bad business sense. If you see something coming down the pike, isn't it always better to take voluntary steps to meet it halfway and to make progress on your own instead of waiting for things to just eventually one day be foisted upon you? Just to, to put one slogan on the end of that, that's just how I've tried to think about this and how I've tried to live my life. You can do well while doing good. One doesn't prohibit the other. And you have an open door and an open hand. You're coming from OEJ. You're coming from a regional person as well. We, we in EPA have an open hand and an open door. And we're inviting you to work with us to figure out how to do well while doing good. What's your role? And then, just to link it right back, how are you going to report it in ESG? So folks out there that only want to put their investments in companies where they believe in the practices and can look at the practices have the opportunity to review your scores and decide to invest in you because they know that you're being responsible in a fiduciary way with regards to both environmental justice and climate. That You're saying, I'm a responsible person. You have no material risks with my company around these issues. And end it any better than that. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ground Truth. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities. Founded on the rule of law and Beverage and Diamond, a national firm specializing in environmental law. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at eli.org. To learn more about ELI, visit www.eli.org. For more on Beverage and Diamond, visit bdlaw.com.